Behold Him Now is a song written by one of our congregation members, Rich Caston. Actually, it is his daughter, Talia, who was singing that. Um, it's such an incredible privilege to pastor a church with, with such diverse gifts. Uh, and as uh, Jeremy already announced to you, if you are musically talented, and this is the right place to be. And uh, as you can see, Jeremy, and he's such a welcoming person, even a musically challenged person like myself feel like going and singing. Uh, in a, in a, and, and as also Teresa is leading the drop-in choir, which is a very innovative idea. Uh, but if you are, whichever uh, gifting you have, and my, and this is not something I scripted, but my dream would be one day to look back at my tenure as a senior pastor at Lake Avenue Church and not to tell you that, oh, I preached some of the greatest sermons and I did this project and this building was named after me or something like that. Uh, but, <laughs> but I just wanted to see that people's gifting irrespective whatever that gifting is God has invested in you, this should be a place where it will flourish. Because that's the fruition of your calling is what God wants. And that's the best sacrifice we can offer. So if that is music, here you have a, an opportunity. If that is being in community, encouraging and edifying and nurturing others, Annie presented you another opportunity. I want Lake Avenue Church to be that place where you will say and that Thank God I went to that place because of this, and I am one step closer to exercising what God has already invested in my life. I just wanted to put, you out, put that out there. Now, we have been reading uh, the greatest story ever told in the, New, uh, in the Old Testament, in the Jewish tradition, and the Exodus story. And last week we saw how God is writing a parallel history and the world history is driven by kings and queens, but the Lord's history is written from the perspective of slaves and nannies and people who are not that significant, not that powerful from the eyes of the world. And we saw the setting of that story in Exodus chapter 1. And if you've been following along, and as you are following my instructions, unlike Sue, who will write notes and never look at it, uh, but, <laughs> but if, you've been following, if you've been following my instructions, you probably went to chapter 2 and read, where you will see the hero of the story emerges, right? Moses is his name, and you know Moses. I don't have to tell you the story of Moses. Now, Moses lived 120 years in this planet Earth, 120 years. And his 120 years can be neatly divided into three different time periods. First 40 years, he was the prince of Egypt. And the next 40 years, he was a Midianite shepherd, or Bedouin shepherd. And in the next 40 years, the final 40 years of his life, he was a Hebrew slave leader who was ushering them to the promised land, the freedom which God had given them. So there is that neatly, if you are, if you are a Hollywood 
uh, person and you understand the three-act structure of a story. I mean, we all live in Los Angeles. You would understand the Hollywood language. Every story has three acts. In the act number one, the, it's called the hero's journey. Hero starts from home, you know. And then the hero faces a conflict. That's act number two. It's a, it, the act of conflict. And act number three is the redeeming act where he, hero emerges as victor. And from that conflict, and he finds a resolution in a way that we didn't expect, and we go to act three of the hero's journey. Now Moses' first two acts are already compiled in chapter two. Cap chapter two basically summarizes act one and act two. It's done. Here he was, destined to die a child, but then he got this privilege to grow up as the prince of Egypt. You know the story. Pharaoh's daughter basically took him, drew him out of water, and he became the prince of Egypt, the best education possible, royal lifestyle. And then comes act two, where the hero meets a conflict. But Moses knew that he was the deliverer. He was going to deliver the people using his might, using his influence, his clout, his position, his power as the prince of Egypt. And he tried to do that with his fist by killing an Egyptian oppressor. Huh. The story turned around. Everything backfired. And now the hero becomes a nobody. He is wandering in the wilderness, lost a sense of identity, lost the sense of purpose, 80 years old, done, this is it. The ultimate crash of the male ego where you have to tend your father-in-law's sheep. If you ask any man, that is the ultimate crushing of a male. I have done it, that's why I'm, I'm saying this, you know. <laughs> that's, that's when you know God has crushed you to pulp. There is nothing that there is to be pr proudful of. And then comes the redeeming act. Now we are going to that center of the story where everything turns around. The third act, the redeeming act, which extends for the next whole four books of the Pentateuch. First two act was only in one chapter, just chapter two, that's it. But chapter, th uh, the act three, the redeeming act is going to extend forever because the legend is still on. The legend is still alive. So here, uh, would you stand with me for the reading of the word? We are going to read two verses again, two passages. First will be Exodus chapter 3, verses 1 to 3. Now Moses was pasturing the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. The angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire from the midst of a bush. And he looked and behold, the bush was burning with fire, yet the bush was not consumed. So Moses said, I must turn aside now and see this marvelous sight why the bush is not burned up. Second passage will be Luke chapter 22, 
verses 39 to 44. And he came out and proceeded, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives. And the disciples also followed him. When he arrived at the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and began to pray, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. Now an angel from heaven appeared to him, strengthening him. And being in agony, he was praying very fervently, and his sweat became like drops of blood falling down upon the ground. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. See, there are two kinds of people in the world. A type of people who call God and then another group of people who are called by God. In my opinion, everybody calls God. Even atheists do, even though they don't admit it. I've hung out with enough atheists to know that the ultimate desperation of human being, there is this one place every single person, whether they admit it or not, whether it comes through their lip or not, turn, oh my God, because we know that our help has to come from elsewhere. We all hit that point at some time. Religious people are honest enough to call God, and others don't necessarily say it, but they create their own God. But that's not the point. But then there is another group of people I've seen, I don't know how to explain it. These are the type of people called by God. Now, we all have a sense of calling, and that's what I said in the beginning of this, uh, you know, the sermon, that we all have a sense of calling, and we are all called to do different things. But there are certain people, God kind of locks them down to a specific task in a way that they are trapped, trapped. And there is, they even lose a sense of free will. I don't understand. Jonah is a classic example. The man said, I'm minding my business. I don't want to go. No, I want you to go. Jonah says, but there are dime a dozen Jonas at that time. There are other prophets. What's wrong with God? No, after this poor man, he was going one place after the other, but God is kind of haunting him. I want to make sure this task is done, but I want to make sure this is done by Jonah himself. It doesn't happen all the time, but, but sometimes it does. And here is a case like that, okay? Moses' case. And see, this is again, Moses, if I use that uh, language of Hollywood, he is a reluctant hero. A reluctant hero in a story archetype is a person, an ordinary person thrown into extraordinary situations. And he doesn't want it, he doesn't care for it, but then he rises above that limit to achieve something incredible, a reluctant hero. That's who Moses was. Moses did not want to be a savior. Moses did not want to deliver anybody, but God is determined, and this is a task to be done by Moses and Moses alone. And God has chosen 
Moses. Now the chosenness is a very, very difficult concept for us to grasp. Because I grew up wondering when I read the Bible for the first time in my teen years, I never understood the concept in the Bible that says Jews are the chosen people of God. It used to drive me mad. What do you mean Jews are the chosen people of God? What about Indians? What about Italians or Chinese and you know? I mean, how can God have some kind of favorite people? How can God choose some people, you know? I mean, again, don't get me wrong, and so let me, let me clarify this. I have nothing against Jewish people, and if you really uh, Google the place where I'm coming from, in my, the hometown, my hometown in India is called Kochi. So if you Google Kochi, not right now, uh, if you Google Kochi, the first thing that comes out, the first thing that comes out will be the tourist attraction of my hometown is a Jewish synagogue. We have a Jewish settlement right from the time of Solomon, believe it or not, right? And the main street, one of the main streets in Kochi is called the Jew Street. So, yeah, no, I'm serious. Even now, there is a very, very tiny Jewish population. So I grew up among Jews. So some of my friends were Jews. So they're wonderful people. And even my favorite, uh, you know, my, my legendary, you know, what do you, what do you call the iconic, my idols, uh, that's a bad word to say, but, but you know, in, in some of my field, like, you know, I used to be in the field of science before I became a theologian, and Albert Einstein was my hero. Obviously, he's a Jew. And then I switched to movie field and where Steven Spielberg is my hero. And then, then switched to theology, Jesus is my hero. All of these guys are Jewish. <laughs> so so I, I admire Jews and I have no, no problem with, uh, with Jews having a special place. But, but it didn't, didn't really make sense. Didn't really make sense when say, God says, they are my people, my people. And I'm like, what's wrong with me, right? What's wrong with me, you know? <laughs> so uh, this, is, this is a concept I was struggling, and then this happened, and I don't want to tell too much about it, but my, the first chapter of my first book actually dealt with this conundrum I was having, the problem of election uh, or choosing of God. And I tell a story in that book, which I still get, uh, a lot of emails from random people, strangers from different parts of the world. That story, the boy in the blue shirt, really helped me. So I'm going to tell that one story from the book I wrote. Uh, so it's a true story. And when I was a teenager, I think I was in middle school or high school, and uh, there was a traveling magician that came to our school in India. And uh, he was doing many tricks in the school assembly. We were all kids watching and excited, and he's pulling rabbits out of the... Uh, out of his hat and flying, you know, making dead chicken fly, cutting up people and fixing them. Oh, wow, like, you know, we were just wondering, my goodness, what an amazing treat. Then towards the end of that performance, he said, I'm going to do the next act. The next act, I need a volunteer. So please raise your hand. He was looking for a volunteer. His eyes were scanning the crowd. And I still remember the tension 
You know, I remember ducking right below the, because I don't know what's going to happen because, you know, if you volunteer, you go up and the last person, what he did was, you know, cutting them up and what if he couldn't fix me back and what if he makes me disappear and all that kind of things. So every single kid in the room got frustrated and they were all, they were all kind of crouching behind their seats. Oh, not me, not me, right? Then I remember hearing that voice, the magician, oh, you know, if nobody's going to volunteer, I'm going to pick somebody random. And so he said, hey, that boy in the blue shirt, the boy in the blue shirt. And I remember, oh my goodness, I was wearing a white shirt or something. I was not wearing a blue shirt. Oh, goodness. So I looked at the stage and I saw, oh, this guy in the blue shirt, everybody knew him because he was the class geek, I would say. He was one of these kids every bully, every bully tried to pick on. He was always sitting in the back bench, and he was always eating his lunch alone. He was a dorky kid with no real friends, and he was just trembling. You know, he was shivering walking, in, you know, walking into, this, into the stage. And anyway, he went, the boy in the blue shirt, and went, and then they performed a the magic. The detail's not important, but anyway, since I'm telling you the story, so the magician poured a glass of milk and put it in the, in the center of the stage. And then he asked this boy in the blue shirt to, to stand on one side of the stage and gave him a straw and then asked him to drink this milk. So there is at least around 20 to 30 feet distance between the glass and the boy and he has a six inch straw. So there is no way he can, he can drink it. So he didn't know what to do. He was kind of sucking in, uh, in, in, in air. <laughs> and, and because we were all enjoying his predicament, we were having, we were snickering, and it was just, it was a fun thing to, uh, to do. But then suddenly the magic happened. This boy who was standing at least 30 feet away, and he was drawing air through this, this straw, suddenly the milk in the glass started disappearing. The more he drew, the more the glass, so oh, we could, I still feel the goosebumps. And as a kid, kid watching it, I can't believe that guy is drawing, siphoning milk through thin air. And then at the end, he said, spit it out, spit it out. Then the boy, you know, he said, you know, doing the blowing air again, out, right? And then, then suddenly the milk started coming back up. My goodness, that was a big magic. It, was, it, 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 it captivated me so much that I went and learned how to do it. Actually, I can do it, and fortunately, I'm not prepared. One day, I, I can do that too. So anyway, but I was so, because it was, a, it was that young man, I wanted to know what it was. But the point is this, the point is this. See, the real miracle or the real magic happened after this incident. What I explained was not the real miracle. Because this guy, this chubby little kid, dorky kid, nerdy kids, who didn't have any friends, suddenly became the hero of our school. Every girl wanted to be after him. Because we all thought he somehow got some magical power from this magician. And he became a hero. Everybody was talking about it. Everybody wanted to be his friend. And there was an entourage of people around him all the time. And this suddenly a star is born. The legend of the boy with the blue shirt. Right? 
Now, what really happened there was, see, that boy was not chosen because he was special, but he became special because he was chosen. I'm going to say that one more time. <laughs> he was not chosen because he was special to magician, but he became special because he was chosen. Now, God is performing a magic act in this world. God is trying to show his power to the world. For that, he needs a volunteer. He wants somebody to come to the stage to channel his power to the rest of the world. And he chose a man. His name is Abraham. Why was he chosen? We don't really know. Again, first chapter of my first book deals with it in details. I don't want to get into that. But one thing for sure I'm telling you, if you study the foundational theology of the Bible, choosing is always an act of grace. I'll say that one more time. Choosing is always an act of grace. Nobody earns their right to be chosen. God chooses person. Abraham, in my opinion, was not chosen because he was special, but he became special because he was chosen. By virtue of their birth, every Jew is born into the center stage of God's magic act. They are the volunteers. They are standing, performing God's magic act to the world. For that reason, they will be treated very special because they are part of the magic. It is very important for the magician that, that God's lovely assistant to be in line with the magic act. So because they are chosen and they became special. But the danger though is assuming that, you know, in our Western rationalistic mind, we always think of as selection as a, you know, when you say we are... When we talk about selection, we automatically think about rejection. When we say Matthew John is selected, then we automatically think about how many people are rejected. Right? But, but that's not how God works. See, a person is selected for the sake of others. That volunteer was chosen not for the sake of him to be a hero, but for the sake of the audience. The audience is just as important, and in a way, I will say more important to the magician than the volunteer himself, because ultimately, the act is being performed for the audience. So the Jews are chosen for the sake of the Gentile. Jews are chosen for the sake of the world. It's not a call into privilege, but it is a call into responsibility. But along with the responsibility will come privileges too. Now, if you're thinking about what exactly he's saying, let me, let me read some verses. So here is the calling of Abraham. Genesis chapter 12, verses 2 and 3. I'm going to read Genesis chapter 12, 2 and 3. This is the first calling. This is the chosenness. This is where the choosing begins, right? 
This is the Abrahamic covenant. I will make you a great nation, God says to Abraham. And I will bless you and make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you. And the one who curses you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Did you, did you see that? There was a footnote in that covenant which we always forget. We always think about, oh, Abraham was the chosen. Abraham was great. The Jewish people are God's chosen people. There is no doubt about that. But the reason of that choosing is right there in the footnote. In you, all the families of the earth, the Indians and the Chinese and the Koreans and the Italians, every single person are my children and they are important to me. So in you, I am choosing you to be on the stage with me, but that doesn't mean that you are somehow more important to me than others. Yes because of your choosing, but in the, in the bigger scheme of this act, you are called for the sake of others. See, salvation is from the Jews, but that doesn't mean that salvation is for the Jews. See, that's the way God operates. God chooses a community, and then from that, he dispenses that calling and the grace to other people. I can give you so many verses, but let me give you a couple more. Isaiah, the prophet said, Isaiah 49, 6. I will also make you a light of the nations, so that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. So the calling of Jews was not just for them to be on the center stage and become some kind of mythical heroes, but in you, and you are called to be the light to the Gentiles. You are called to go across the world and propagate the power of God which you have experienced. I want you to talk to the Chinese and the, and the Russians and wherever you go, and you, I want you to take my power to the rest of the world. You are meant to be a light to the Gentiles. And then again, and you know this is a famous verse, Isaiah 56, 7, where it says, Jesus himself quoted this, my house will be called a house of prayer for all the people or all nations. <laughs> This is not some New Testament thing. We all say, yeah, New Testament, everybody is same. No, no, Old Testament also, everybody is kind of the same. That temple we call Jewish temple is not exactly Jewish temple according to these words. It says, this is a house of prayer for all nations. But Jews are important. Of course they are important because they are chosen. Of course, every responsibility comes with certain kind of privilege. They, are, they have a privilege because they have to execute this calling in the world. Now, I don't want to go into a tangent here, but this is the beauty of the, or the layers of calling where we go to. So the Jews... The, the Israel was chosen as a nation to show God's power to the world. But at this time in the story, <laughs> they are nowhere near to show God's power to anybody. They don't even experience God's power. 430 years of slavery under a tyrannical regime 
And you know that will, what will do to the psyche of that kind of people. And they thought, this is the end. That is it. There is no God. Some desert voices mumbling something. There is no redemption. So they at that time are not in a position to show God's power to the world. So God thought, I will choose Moses to show my power to Israel. Before Israel shows his power to the world, I will choose Moses to show my power to Israel, right? Now, I told you about Moses at that stage. Act 2, age 80. <laughs> done. Completely done. Lost meaning, lost purpose. Interesting, I was re-watching the movie Ten Commandments, uh, the famous uh, Hollywood movie, and it struck me when they were talking about the second act of Moses and they show this beautiful uh, scene where Moses is wandering in the wilderness and then the narrator reads out this beautiful poetry and I'm going to mess it up with my accent but I just had to read it. Uh, you should watch the movie to get the real impact. <laughs> but I thought this explains the state of mind when where Moses was in at that point, when the burning, the burning bush happened to him, right? The man who walked with kings now walks alone, torn from the pinnacle of royal power, stripped of all rank and earthly wealth, forsaken man without a country, without a hope, his soul in turmoil, like the hot winds and raging sands that lash him with the fury of a taskmaster's whip. Each night brings the black embrace of loneliness. In the mocking whisper of the wind, he hears the echoing voices of the dark. Moses, Moses, Moses. His tortured mind wondering if they call the memory of the past triumphs or the veil foreboding of disasters yet to come, or whether the desert's hot breath has melted his reason into madness. Learning that it can be more terrible to live than to die, he is driven onward through the burning crucible of desert where holy men and prophets are cleansed and purged for God's great purpose. Until at last, at the end of human strength, beaten into the dust from where he came, the metal is ready for the maker's hand. Wow. <laughs> the metal is ready for the maker's hand. I want you to get that chain of God's calling one more time. God chooses Israel to show his power to the world. Then God chose Moses to show his power to Israel. Now both these parties are not in a position to show his power to anybody. So God does another choosing. God chooses a bush to show his power to Moses. Okay? I'll say that, <laughs> get that sequence again. God chooses Israel to show his power to the world, and God chooses Moses to show his power to Israel, and then God chooses a bush, a bush to show his power to Moses. And the first thing he does, 
after choosing this bush was setting it on fire. <laughs> now that is the paradox of God's choosing, isn't it? Yeah, Jews are the chosen people, big deal we say. There is a word called anti-Semitism, you know that? It's the, basically it means the hatred of the Jews. There, is, there are not a lot of people like Indian people, I know. Some people don't like Indian people, I, I, I assume, I, I don't know. But there is no word called anti-Indianism or anti-whatever you want to take, right? There is a word called anti-Semitism because people hate Jews just for being Jew. Just for being a Jew. They don't have to do anything. Just for being a Jew, people hate them. Now that is the struggle with God's calling. Right? And we always think of this choosing as this privileged position, but let me read Amos chapter 3, verse 2. This is what Amos chapter 3, verse 2 says. You only have a chosen among all the families of the earth. God says to the Jews, you only have a chosen among all the families of the earth. And the next word baffles me. Therefore, I will punish you for all your in iniquities. Really? I thought being a chosen one means you get some kind of special kind of, you can get away with a lot of things. That's what I think when you are chosen. We choose Matthew John as the senior pastor of Lake Avenue Church, so we are going to chastise you. Now that doesn't come with the, my job contract. My job contract is very flawed because you have chosen as a senior pastor. I get a lot of privileges which no other pastors have here. That's why I, got, I took this position. <laughs> right now, I'm just saying. <laughs> but it doesn't make sense if you are chosen. Here it says, you only have I chosen and the next word is I'm going to bless you. That's what I expect. No, I will punish you. Oh, I'm going to watch over you now so that I will purify you and I will punish you. Now, that is the other side of God's calling. Now, when God calls you to show his power, the first thing he does is set you on fire. But the difference in this fire is, and Moses saw this bush. Now, burning bush is nothing magical, by the way. I've lived in Kuwait, some of you know. I used to be an environmental system engineer back in Kuwait, and my job was to drive, not drive, I had a driver, but I was the engineer sitting in the back seat. Basically, we drive around Kuwait City and the desert uh, to monitor the environmental factors, and Kuwait is, has these ring roads. The first ring road is basically the downtown. Second ring road will be kind of suburb, and the third and the fourth and the fifth and the sixth you go, it is basically the desert and you can take a turn and you will end up in Iraq or you take another turn you will end up in Saudi Arabia because Kuwait as a, as a country is kind of like Los Angeles that's all it's not a big place anyway but when you go into some of these places and I had to go to some of these deserts to monitor the environmental factor anyway with all these mobile stations and when we go and the temperature sometime can be in between 120 to 140 yeah, yeah, so it's a desert, right? And what happens is this hot sun and the sun rays can be so pointed it will kind of focus on certain dried and withered bushes and it will, they will catch fire automatically because of that sunlight in the desert. 
So sometimes you actually see burning bushes all around. So that's not something magical for, for, for uh, Moses to see, burning bushes in the desert all the time. He's a shepherd. That's what he does all the time, right? And But the difference in this case, he says, why is that bush burning, but it is not being consumed? You see, that's what makes the burning bush magical. It's not the fire in the bush, but this fire that is set by God is very different from the fire set by the world. The fire set by God will not consume you, but it will purge you, it will cleanse you, it will refine you, and it will shape you. Right? Now that is the difference. They're just like a like a metal smith. <laughs> like Hollywood say, the metal is ready for the maker. Moses at this point is ready to be shaped. And here, Moses, here you go. This is how I'm going to do this. And a, a precious metal is taken into the anvil and put on fire. But the goldsmith is really watching it very carefully. And the fire that is burning around that metal is only going to purify it. It is the refiner's fire. It is the refining fire, not the destroying fire. Israel is burning. Because God is using that nation to show his power to the world. Moses is burning because he is being used to show his power to Israel. And the bush is burning because it is being used to show his power to Moses. And do you think you are burning? You think you are burning? I think God is using you to show his power to the world. And I want you to know the journey of the chosen one is a journey through fire. Irrespective of what your life situation is, I don't know what you're going through. But I want you to know that if this fire is set by God, it is not going to consume you. It is going to shape you into the person God has chosen you to be. You know, I'm just going to say a prayer. I'm going to ask that. I've never scripted this. I didn't script this. Can, is there anybody in the prayer team there? Can you come up? Ask the, ask the worship team, worship team, would you come up and sing uh, as they do the response song. And I want to be here. I want to say a prayer for you. Anybody who wants prayer, would you come up? Would you come up? Asbeth, would you come? Lori, some of you. If you need prayer for anything you're going through, it doesn't matter. We are all burning. And maybe God is using you to show his power to the world. And you... We all need to be part of this journey, the journey of the chosen one. So as the worship team sing, feel free to come up and we will be praying for you, praying with you.